0: Hello, Sullivan. Good to have you in the studio. Our brand new studio here in Bryanton. Are you impressed?
1: Yeah, no, it's very nice. Uh, (laughs) We're growing up here
0: at BizNews. You've been with us the journey all the way through. Also, you've been on the journey with the Zondo Commission. And now we have part one of the reports from the Zondo Commission. As an overview, your thoughts?
1: Well, so far so good. You know, the way it's coming out, you're seeing... SAA, so it vindicates my actions against Duda although I don't get mentioned in the report, I think. Did you actually make a submission? To oh, something? yeah. We made a very detailed submission. Um, and then we applied to cross examine some of the witnesses. And at one stage, they were talking about, you know, that I would go and give evidence. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, they announced that the criminal justice system is no longer part of their mandate. So they won't be reporting on the criminal justice system. And that, for me, was a problem because had they have recognised the fact that state capture was only possible after the capture of the criminal justice system, they would have realised that the capture of the criminal justice system was one of the enabling factors. And, I mean, if you had good cops and good prosecutors in situ, state capture couldn't have happened the people would have been arrested and charged. So that's a real big problem for me. We've got letters on file from the Sonder Commission denying my request, my application, formal application, uh, to cross-examine certain witnesses. I wanted to cross-examine a number of witnesses. Who in particular? Uh, I wanted to cross-examine uh, Duda Mayeni. I want to cross-examine... Well, you would have come... Just as short as everybody else there, because yeah, she I certainly didn't. Well, want yeah, to except I share. would have wiped the floor with her, eh? How? Well, I would have made allegations to her, and she would have had to, to, to use her expression, quote the Fifth Amendment, you know, uh, the right to remain silent. Uh, I wanted to. There were a number of people within the NPA and the police who got up there and lied through their teeth, or produced affidavits which they submitted in terms of which they lied through their teeth. And those people belong in prison. And some of them are still in their jobs within the NPA and the police. That's interesting. So there were certain people who committed perjury at
0: the Zondo Commission yeah. where you have to speak under oath. Yeah. Can yeah. they go to jail for that?
1: Well, they can go to jail for what they what they spoke about because they lied through their teeth. Apart from the perjury they committed at the Zondo Commission... And, I mean, the problem is the sonic Commission has come to an end now, and if they start prosecuting all the people that lied, that's going to be another 15 or 20 years in court. Uh, (laughs) You've got a good uh, approach to
0: that, Paul. In other words, don't try and get them on a 1,000 counts. Find uh, uh, the ones that'll stick. Just just
1: unpack that for us. Okay, it goes back to a case I dealt with many, many years ago. It was a guy that convicted of uh, fraud a very big-scale fraud in those days, going back to the early 90s. And then another case I dealt with after that. But this particular case of fraud, I was in the police then. We charged a guy with... It took me three months to write the charge sheet. 1,898 charges. 112 charges short of 2,000. It took me three months to write the charge sheet, and the charge sheet comprised three lever-arch files. And That's just
0: the charge sheet, in yeah, other words, what yeah, he's done yeah, wrong.
1: Yeah, he's a very bad guy. He stole from pensioners, you know, he stole a lot of money. His name is Andre Boa. And he had all these re- retirement villages, which I actually rescued. I used my own cash to rescue uh, those villages and bring, you know, bring the people to what they paid for, that they got what they paid for. And what happened at the time was he was arrested and charged. I think he was arrested in April of 1994, and he was kept behind bars for maybe three or four months, and then he was released on bail, and then his trial continued. And his trial only ended in 1997, so it was like three, three, and, a, three and a half years. So it was towards the end of 97, and then he, he was sentenced to uh, about 300-and-something years in prison because of all these charges, But the effect of all those charges, they have what they call the summing up rules. And they add them all together. And some are consecutive, some are concurrent, blah, blah, blah. And the net effect was he got 15 years in prison. And I was at the Rand Club with the prosecutor and the regional court magistrate who sentenced him. Obviously, that wasn't possible before he went on trial or during the trial. And we were sitting there at the Rand Club and we had a nice meal. And then I think I was just getting stuck into my sticky toffee pudding with custard when the regional magistrate came out with something like, of course you realised if you'd have charged him with only 10 charges, he would have still got 15 years. And that made me think. And after that, as a policeman, I used to just go for the low-hanging fruit. I'd go for the charges that were crisp and clean and could easily be proven in court. And I would abandon the other charges because what's the point in having a three-year trial if you can have a three-week trial and the guy will still get 10 years or 15 years? Whereas if you have a, a three-year trial, he's still going to get 10 years or 15 years. So my approach then was to say, forget all the other stuff, pick five charges. And the next case that I was involved in where we actually did just that was a bank manager by the name of Vita Osanti. He was the regional bank manager at Kempton Park of NBS Bank. And he assisted a lawyer and a building contractor to swipe about, I think it was about 375 million rand. And when I started drafting the charge sheet, I thought, hang on a minute. This this trial can go on forever. They selected, eventually the NPA selected five charges involving an amount of 50 million rand you know, big checks for 20 and 10 and whatnot. And those five charges, he copped a plea on them. He realised that his game was over and he copped a plea. Now, there's another thing that's wrong with our criminal justice system. I contracted between 2006 and 2009 with the British government. I was working for the uh, Ministry of Justice in the UK and we were looking at uh, reorganising the criminal legal aid system in the UK And it ultimately came to the fact that they have what they call sentencing rules in the UK. So if you're convicted of this type of category of an offence, there's a standard sentence you should get. Now, they should apply that here in South Africa, because the way it works in the UK is if you plead guilty before the trial commences, you automatically get one third off the sentence that you would get if you pleaded not guilty and were convicted
0: So stop wasting everybody's time yes. you you are if you're guilty of something yes. we'll incentivize yes. you to do that
1: you, so then if you are pleading not guilty of course you have the right to plead not guilty sure. but if you plead not guilty and the evidence against you you are convicted remember most of those sort of trials are jury system so it's 12 good men and women you know and that's the way it works and if you are convicted, then the, the, the decision on sentencing has got nothing to do with the jury. And for most part, it's got nothing to do with the judge. He has a guideline that he has to follow. Now, if we had that sort of thing going on here, instead of getting 15 years, some of these people could cop a plea and go for 10 years or five years even. You know, I look at Duda Miani, for example, apart from being a despicable woman uh, without a shred of honesty in her body. If she was to plead guilty to, for example, contempt of court, uh, which is the offence she committed at the Zondo Commission, she named witness X, and she did that on purpose to intimidate the person, so she could also be charged there with intimidating that person or defeating the ends of justice. But if she was to cop a plea and go to jail for five years, I'm pretty sure the country would be happy whether she got five years or 10 years or 15 years. The important thing is they have to go to prison. And if they think they can escape jail, then that's another problem. And then there needs to be reparation. And Zondo talks about reparation in the report. But the problem is the legislation uh, for reparation in South Africa also needs to be overhauled.
0: There's lots of work to be done there, but the big story internationally on the Zondo Commission right now is Bain. the Financial Times of London, who've run a number of stories on it, including an editorial comment where they are calling on Bain's customers or clients around the world to ditch them. And that's unprecedented. In
1: fact, I spoke to Peter about it, and, you know, Peter's quite uh, vocal. Peter? Uh, Peter Hain, And uh, he's given them a good clobbering in the UK as well. I think he's going to be asking for colleagues of his in the Houses of Parliament, because, as you know, he's in the House of Lords, He's going to be asking for colleagues to bring a motion to ban them from working for any government part, department um, in the UK. They're still
0: working for government in South Africa, though, which well, is astonishing Well, they are. They need situation. to be fired
1: everywhere. And it's very easy for them to say they made a mistake. But actually, they facilitated the hollowing out of, of SARS, And they made a mistake because they were paid to make a mistake. Now, that, in my opinion, amounts to corruption. If you produce a report that says what the person paying for the report wants you to say, then you're involved in corruption.
0: And you're leveraging your international brand yeah. to give it credibility. That's KPMG it. did well, similarly. KPMG
1: did the same. And unfortunately with KPMG, you know their report has been completely discredited. And the result of that is that some of what the work they did, you end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, because not 100% of everything in their report was fallacious, Some of it actually had merit. Um, I don't go into that right now, but some of the allegations they made had merit, and it was backed up with documentary evidence. Now, the but pro- the whole
0: report has been thrown out of because it they Be- put because things in that yes, they shouldn't
1: have. They were uh, what is it? He who pays the piper calls the tune, and mm-hmm. they were playing to the person that was calling the tune, and uh, that's very unfortunate. And of course, KPMG are not alone. You've
0: taken on big corporations, big organizations, very powerful organizations before, yeah. and, and as has uh, still Peter do. Haynes. Still, still do. What, what would you do if you were advising the South African government, or even SARS, on Bain? Because Bain has come back and said, well, in fact, they've been less than contrite, and suggesting that uh, the profits that were earned by their South African subsidiary
1: were earned for good work. Well, you know, you have to look at what I call the management consultants. You know, there's a consultant gravy train around the world. Everybody needs a consultant to tell them what to do next. Um, and they've lost the plot. A lot of, Not only governments, but big corporations as well, are famous for hiring consultants to tell them what to do. Uh, if you turn the clock back, we go back to South African Airways. There was a chap running South African Airways by the name of Coleman Andrews. Now, Coleman Andrews' wife was working for a management consultant company in America. Never. Mm. Serious? Yes, yes. I'm trying to remember their name now. It wasn't Um, Bain. No, it wasn't Bain. (laughs) Otherwise you would have known in the Um, top of your
0: tongue.
1: Was it McKinsey? The the, the company in question changed its name. Subsequently, you know, they became something management Mm. consultants.
0: The the point being it was a management consultant. Management consultant
1: who happened to be... One of their biggest clients was an aviation company, well known aviation company, by the name of Boeing. And at the time, when Coleman Andrews was running the show, South African Airways was busy with a tender for the replacement of its short-haul fleet. So it was either going to be three, A319s and 320s, or it was going to be 737-800s. Uh, of course, we were, Yes, you got the contract. We got, we got the 737-800s. So, so
0: a corruption in South Africa is nothing new. It's been going on for a long time, You, Coleman well, Andrews. But can the Zondo Commission...
1: Well, I'm not saying Coleman was corrupt. I'm just saying, you know, there's a thin grey line corrupt. between a conflict of interests and corruption. And, of course, if you ask Coleman today whether he was corrupt, of course he'll deny it. So we, I don't want to defame the guy. At the end of the day, he didn't do the right thing for South African Airways.
0: Well, it was a slippery slope since then. But well, my point here is... Zondo Commission, Yeah, now that it's, it's come out with its findings yeah. and th- there's, there's a lot of information to be sifted through, yeah. is this going to have an impact on corruption in South Africa or indeed the kind of impact that we are hoping?
1: Well, obviously, ultimately it has to have. But I I'm, I'm remain of the firm opinion that every person, especially a, a person that was in a position of authority, uh, whether he was a minister, he or she, whether they were a minister, uh, whether they were CEO or CFO or chief operating officer of a state-owned entity. I mean, the CEO of SABC is infamous for what he did. You know, they, A lot of these people, in order to pull off the stunts they pulled off, they had to eviscerate their organisations, clear out the management that were good and ethical, and because otherwise they wouldn't get away with what they were doing. So you end up with all these hollowed out state-owned entities. And the people that are gone have left the vacuum. And now these entities are supposed to be running on you know normal business lines. Meanwhile, all their expertise is gone. SAA was a prime example. Uh, Transnet, SARS. Praza, SARS, you know, a lot of these organized denial. a lot of these organizations. Uh, were hollowed out for purposes of corruption. But the most important one was the criminal justice system because in hollowing out the criminal justice system, they did two things. First of all, they ensured that the cops wouldn't catch the robbers because the cops were friends of the robbers. And secondly, anybody that stood on on the hill and pointed at the robbers became targets. And as you know, I mean, I was... My offices were raided multiple times. I had, I was arrested several times. Um, Sarah Jane Trent, uh, the the director of forensics for justice, was kidnapped and hauled away for three days. I was I was detained. On one of the occasions, I was detained. I was tortured, Um, and then eventually I had to go through seven trials. And if you add all the charges together on the seven trials, there were sixty five charges. Now, of course, I've been acquitted or or the cases were thrown out of court. But the the fact is that was three years of my life, actually more. It was four years of my life Uh, down the drain. They kept my passport so I couldn't go overseas to visit my family. There was a lot of issues. And the instantaneous justice that they tried to serve on me has to be contrasted with the fact that I opened my first criminal docket against Miami, in March 2015. That's almost seven years ago. In January 2016, I opened a docket against her with prima facie evidence in it, I should add. In March 2016, I made a supplementary statement and added more prima facie facie evidence. And in July 2016, I made another one. And then in 2017, we opened a docket against Mayeni and Sumer for corruption. So, All those dockets have been sitting there all those years with prima facie evidence in. And to give you an idea of the scale of things, it took four and a half years to build the train. Some of those dockets have been sitting there for six and a half years.
0: The timeline is interesting here because this is during the period when Jacob Zuma was the president of South Africa, where the Zuptas were at their zenith of power, before the elective conference where... Sir Ramaphosa, in December 2017, when he was elected. So they're all there. You can almost understand that during a time when the president of the country is being potentially implicated in the dockets that you've opened, yeah. that there would be no investigation. Well, uh, we but made why the, not in the five years subsequent well, to that? We what's the, going we, on we, now?
1: Well, you know, um, I wrote a letter a couple of weeks ago to Shamila um and she, she responded saying that don't worry, we're onto to it. We're dealing with it, you know. Um, what I've asked for is an insurance that they will go for the, the low-hanging fruit. And it seems to be that there's an attitude or a policy in the NPA that everybody must be charged with everything they did.
0: So going back to the, how we started this yeah, conversation. and I'm
1: saying that's wrong. Because if you're going to do that, the interests of justice won't be served. You're going to end up with half a dozen people with long-drawn-out trials tying up the criminal justice system for the next 20 years. And that's, that is not in the interest of justice. I would be more than happy to see Dudu Maiani get slapped in jail for five years for defeating the ends of... Forget the corruption charges. That's, that's going to be a long trial to produce a... Cor- We've got a videotape of that woman sitting there naming Mr X. That's a criminal offence. Lock it up. Short and sweet. And the, be- the sad thing, and I made the comment at the time. The sad thing is, when she did that, there were policemen sitting in the room who should have they should arrested have arrested
0: her? her immediately. Did they know that? Uh, no, would they have known? Excuse me.
1: Did a- these policemen know what they're doing? If the, the the Criminal Procedures Act makes it clear that a police officer can arrest any person that commits any offence in front of them. So the police don't have to investigate. If they're sitting there and they see her commit the offence, they can arrest her immediately. And I'm left wondering, why didn't they? Those cops should be hauled up and said, explain why you didn't arrest a woman. And I can tell you the answer. The answer is very simple. The criminal justice system was captured starting back in 2012, which is after Zuma came to power, a process endured to capture the whole of the criminal justice system. At one stage you had Jiba, the acting national director of public prosecutions, then you had this clown, uh, corrupt clown at that Sean the Sheep, who was illegally appointed in the first place. Michael Holly appointed him. He never even met with Sumer when Sumer signed his appointment letter. He never even met met him. And
0: that was the head of the NPA. N-
1: N- yeah, Paul. Just uh, just to uh, perhaps
0: put that into perspective, we've had five years of a different government.
1: Yeah. Well, we haven't had we five have years, have we?
0: Almost. Well, we've had four years. How far are we still down the rabbit hole? If we were at 100% captured during Zuma's uh, regime, where would we be sitting today?
1: I don't know. I'd say we're still 50% captured. That doesn't mean 50% of all the cops and prosecutors are captured. I'm saying if one goes back to the level that we were at, when we were 100% captured, it didn't mean that every prosecutor was corrupt. It meant that the control, just trying to get a feel. For well, it, I made yeah. the appointment to Godfrey Lebea. You know, he was appointed the head of the Hawks, and I, you know, I've known Godfrey for years and years and years. And I said to him in one email about a year after he was appointed, and I said, Godfrey, the problem now is that you are in charge of the Hawks, but you're not in control of the Hawks, and the same applies to the National Prosecuting Authority. I told Shamila. I said, Shamila. You are in charge of the NPA, but you're not in control of the NPA.
0: How long will it take for her to get into control well, now that can. she's lost her right
1: hand? I used if you you know, I use the expression sleeper cells. So during the period of state capture, while these people owned the criminal justice system, they appointed unlawfully, they appointed a whole host of people into different positions within the hooks within the police, within the NPA, within the secret services. So you've got all those people there. Now, how do you get rid of them? Do you go through disciplinary inquiries? Now, the problem is those people are part of the supply chain, if you like. They're part of this, this supply chain in delivering criminal justice. And how can you deliver criminal justice if you've got people pulling in the opposite direction? And that's what we have here. If I take a block of concrete that weighs 10 tons and I put it on the floor and I tie a rope to both sides of the concrete and I say, right, find out how many men you need to drag that concrete in that direction. Let's say east, you know. Right, 100 men. Good. Let's drag the concrete. Now the problem is 50 of those men run around to the other side and they pull the rope in the opposite direction. That concrete's going nowhere. So you actually need now 150 on the rope to go east to counter the 50 that are trying to pull west. And that's the same thing that's going on in the criminal justice system. I'll, I'll give you a classic example. We go and open criminal dockets on a regular basis, and sometimes for clients, you know, because we, I run a, a practice of fraud consultants. So we open dockets. Now, you arrive at a police station at a front desk, and maybe myself or Sarah Jane or one of my other staff, who are all extremely highly qualified people, arrive at a police station front desk with the client and a lever arch file being the docket. And the cop behind the counter says, no, you can't open a docket like that. You have to write it out by hand. How do you write a 100-page affidavit with annexes of all the evidence, where you've set out chapter and verse of how a fraud was committed. How do you write that out by hand? And that's the mentality we're dealing with. And then you go to the station commander, and eventually the station commander comes and tells him, OK, go register the docket. The, problem, the mentality we have is there's currently no leadership in the police, no proper leadership which filters from the top down to station level, and there you end up with guns going missing, and they don't even know when they went missing, because they haven't kept proper records. So nobody knows, "Oh, uh, stock take is done. Oh, there's 20 guns missing. Oh, when were they stolen?" Mmm, I don't know. Well, when did we last do the stock take? Okay, two years ago. right. In the docket, it says they were stolen between 19, uh, uh, 2018 and 2020. Now, well, how the hell can you not account for 20 guns over a period of two years? Is
0: there any good news you can give us?
1: Yeah, I think the good news is that we're winning, slowly but surely. I think what needs to happen is some... I use the expression quick justice. What's missing in South Africa is quick justice. The only people that get quick justice are people like myself who go and open criminal dockets against Duda Miani. And then three weeks later, I'm in a jail cell with handcuffs behind my back having... A corrupt general in the police prodding me in the chest, telling me you don't know how you've upset Duda Miani. That's That's quick justice of the wrong kind. We now need quick mm-hmm. justice of the right kind. And I'm hoping in the next report that Zondo issues, and I hope somewhere somebody listens and gives him the message, that he doesn't just refer to the ex CFO of South African Airways not having complied with section 34.1 of the Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Act. But I'm hoping he will name and shame every minister and every government senior employee who knew corruption was going on and didn't do anything about it.
0: That's going to be a long report. Talking of which, you've got a book in the making.
1: Yeah, it's it's coming out soon. Uh, we ha- we We, well, it's, It's going to be in the shops before Easter. And it's going to be a cracker. No holy cows, as they say. You know, the problem we have over here, I go, if you look at our world, our world is compartmentalised. And a lot of people don't get justice when they deserve it. And the reason they don't get justice when they deserve it is because you have cliques, cliques that protect each other. Um, It's very hard to find a lawyer to help you sue a lawyer. It's very hard to find a doctor that will give evidence in a, a a medical malpractice case against another doctor. And the same applies in in the media. It's very hard to find media who are prepared to criticise other media, unless, of course, there's some sort of a animosity between the parties concerned. Um, for example, you see a lot of animosity at the moment, public animosity between Daily Maverick and... IOL, you know, the, uh, what's his name? Um, Iqbal Survey. Iqbal. Yeah, Iqbal Survey. And, of course, you know, the fact that Iqbal has, people should have had the name Hans Christian Andersen, uh, <laughs> rather than Zilikaziwa wa Africa, uh which, by the way, isn't his real name. We know his real name. We name him and shame him in our book. Uh, he lives a very wealthy lifestyle, which is surprising because most journalists don't live a wealthy lifestyle lifestyle. So when I see journalists who own 5 million rand houses and drive uh, 1 million rand cars, I always get suspicious. And there's a few of those in South Africa. And then you end up with uh, undercurrents because certain journalists or certain media houses have connections or shareholders or other connections, which leaves you wondering, well, hang on a minute, how can that how, how can that be right? Like how can you report uh, without fear, favour or prejudice in the public domain if you've got shareholders who are themselves connected to the criminal underworld? And that that seems to be rife. In, I'm not suggesting BIS News has any such shareholders, but there are certain organisations out there that are connected or if they're not connected, they have been accused of certain criminal conduct and here they are running media houses And I think that needs to to come out into the open. And it does so in my book. I attack these media houses. I also attack Sanef, who stood by and watched for eight years of state capture and did nothing, allowed all these journalists and editors to get up there and bring the country to its knees by assisting state capture. And yet, when I start naming and shaming And threatening those journalists with exposure, Sanef jump out without speaking to me, by the way, not giving me the, not applying the Audi ultrapartum rule, which journalists are supposed to comply with. Uh, Sanef issue a media release uh, criticizing me for threatening journalists. And then they go and they appoint their own panel to do a whitewash report on. The, the involvement of the media in state capture. You, you
0: don't step back for anybody, Paul. Uh, where I, does this come well, from? You're now making more enemies because... Well, clearly, I'm not making enemies. Then, I'm just telling the truth. You, well, if you, if, you, you, sh- if you take on media houses and accuse them of the things that you've just mentioned now, of course you're making enemies yes. and powerful enemies.
1: Well, you know, they may be... I'm just stating the truth. The problem is some of these media houses have been involved and they need to come out and put, you know... If you go back to 2018, October 2018, actually September 2018, I gave Sunday Times seven days to retract all those stories or face the music. What did they do? Seven days later, they retracted all the stories and they issued a front-page apology. And the three stories I was talking about was the, uh, the, the, I call it the founding story of state capture, Zimbabwe rendition. Now, Zimbabwe rendition was intended to do nothing more or less than neutralise the Hawks, the DPCI. It was to go after Mokateri, uh, sorry, after uh, Anwar Dramat. Mm-hmm. Anwar Dramat, we'll come back to Boyson. Anwar Dramat and uh, the guy in in Gauteng. His memory slipped my mind now. He was ahead of... Not so No, 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 no. Yo, anyway, you know, it'll come back to me just now. And then the next story was... Uh, the Cato Manor Death Squad, which was another work of fiction.
0: Oh, that was Boyson.
1: That was Boyson, mm. and then they, after they got all their their conduct right on those two and got their thing going, uh, they they want to they want ride, so they decided, okay, while well, we're on a roll, uh, let's run another story and finish Sars off, and that was your Sars Rogue Unit. So those three stories we've linked to three journalists. We issued a report in December 2016, called Joining the Dots. And it's on our website. It's on the Forensics for Justice website. And ironically, after issuing that report, the then head of the Hawks, a guy by the name of Plamez, you know, they charged me, I don't know how many charges by that stage, they wanted to charge me with more charges. They wanted to charge me with espionage. So in December 2016, I issued that report. In December 2016, while I was in London, they opened a case against me for espionage and they accused me of trying to uh, cause an Arab Spring revolt in South Africa, trying to undermine and overthrow the government. They accused me of acting together with Robert McBride, the DA, and AfriForum, which of course was absolute rubbish. They said that I had a planning meeting on the 3rd of December 2016 at a house in Bedford View, and they said that at this meeting with those uh, people. Meanwhile, it wasn't a meeting, it was a braai. It was a Christmas braai. I was flying to London that evening, and I was having a braai, and I was handing over to Robert McBride a copy of the report I'd produced. Now, I produced that report in uh, concert, if you like, with AFRI Forum, but the report was my work. And it was published by AfriForum because AfriForum wanted to show what was going on in the police, the prosecution service, and the links with the media and how rotten media had assisted to bring the country to its knees. Now, it's sad for me that the Sondo Commission does, has taken this decision not to report on the, the criminal justice Uh, thread, I think, or stream, work stream, they call it. So they've abandoned the criminal justice work stream because they said it doesn't quite match their original uh, mandate. And that, to me, is wrong, because they allowed a lot of criminals to get into box in Zondo Commission and lie through their teeth, badmouth me, badmouth Robert McBride, badmouth a whole lot of other people, Johan Boysen included, uh, and others. And those people never had a right to reply, by the way. We, we, we didn't. I applied to go and cross examine mm-hmm. these criminals, and I was told to get lost. And I, my question is, well, why did you allow them to badmouth me in the first place? And from a position of privilege, you can't sue somebody for giving evidence in the Sondo Commission because it's deemed to be a position of privilege.
0: Paul, well, before we finish off, in the last few days, two of the star witnesses. Of the, on the other side of state capture, the people who were badly affected by state capture, Temba Maseko and Johan von Loughrenburg, both had invasions, home invasions, or attempted home attempted, invasions.
1: Attempted burglaries.
0: You know this world well. What's yeah. going on there?
1: Well, I mean, look at the rate of crime out there at the moment. So it could be just normal crime. You know, until there's some... It's very easy to say there's reds under the bed. And, of course, why would they be immune to...
0: But why would they both be hit
1: on the same okay, night? Okay, but why would they... They weren't hit on the same night. Well, within, within a, a of couple of other, days yeah. I, I. You know what? It could be linked. It might not be linked. And it's very easy to jump to conclusions. And I think what should happen is a proper investigation, which is very hard these days, with the police and the prosecution service working the way they are, a proper investigation to reveal who was involved. You know... If one turns the clock back, the offices of the Helen Sussman Foundation mm-hmm. uh, were robbed in 2016 and all their computers stolen. The investigation never discovered who was behind it. The problem we have in South Africa today… But
0: 2016 investigators would yes. have been somewhat different to
1: what yes, you would have yes, today. Yes, yes, yes. I'm just wondering, the all, all the evidence is out there now. There's no more evidence to be put on the table… It's there at the Sondo Commission. All that evidence has been done. The only other place that evidence can be led now is in a court of law, when these people are on trial. So what... what, Even if they got there and stole it, what are they stealing? They're stealing copies. The originals are all safely stored away. I just don't see the motive for a house burglary unless they were planning to steal something, you know, like a TV or something like that. That's not to say it wasn't linked. But... Uh, I'm a factual person, you know. Being an engineer, I'm—I I'm take a scientific approach, and I never like to say speculate, shall we say. And one can't speculate until you have some evidence, and then you're not speculating; you're talking about facts. So factually, it's very suspicious. There's no doubt about that. At the moment, that's all it is—very suspicious. <laughs>